Baruch Achi Yehuda. Bless you, my brother. Judah, Baruch Achi Ephraim. Bless you, my brother. Ephraim, Shema Israel. Hear and do, O house of Israel. All right, Shabbat Shalom, and welcome everyone from around the world and uh, those who are joining us on the video here. Um, again, we gather every Shabbat at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And uh, if you are interested in ever joining us live, um, you're more than welcome. Uh, just come in. Uh, just go to the website at uh, rivershabbat.com, and uh, you'll see when you go in there, just scroll down. And you'll see subscribe to the newsletter. Just click on that. And you just put in your email address, your first and your last name. And we will send you out the weekly newsletter, which uh, um, gives the postings of the previous Shabbat gatherings, as well as the upcoming uh, teaching or testimony or whatever we are doing in relationship to that Shabbat and the appointed times or the feast, the biblical feast. So uh, come and join us if you're inclined to do so, and you're more than welcome. We have a wonderful community, great people, and uh, more and more the Father just is bringing us together to enjoy one another. Okay, so we've been sort of getting into this little series on, uh, on the 12 tribes. And uh, again, the point of it was not to... Um, is not to uh, focus on purely the Watts, although we deal with the Watts and all of this, but more, what are some of the fingerprints here? Why would the father do what he's doing? What is this, you know, 12 tribe thing? What is this all about? And um, so we sort of looked in part one of this house uh, divided, and uh, we'll just speak about a couple of things there, but I've got this number of the house, you know, which is, which is, much better than the number of the beast. <laughs> so we are um, we are looking at this sort of number that seems to attach itself um, in in scripture uh, in relationship to the house. And I've got Shanem Asar uh, there, uh, which uh, which Michael likes to say, you know, two ten. And uh, indeed it is. It's interesting that to what, what 12 means in Hebrew is 210. And it's interesting what would happen to this house being divided into 10 uh, scattered tribes in the northern kingdom and the two remaining in the southern. So I don't think there's any coincidences to these things. <laughs> um, the father can paint something outside the time domain, which is indeed stunning. And every now and then we get to look at some of these fingerprints. And so we've got this number of the house, this 12, this 210, you know, Shnem uh, Asar. Um, so uh, we'll just pick up here. So we spoke about sort of this house divided last week, and uh, we sort of looked at the, the Gospels and living creatures, and around this, uh, what I believe was um, the numbers really point to the configuration of the encampment at Sinai for the 12 tribes that would make up the house of Israel and how they formed the ancient Tav, which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It also would be the symbol in which our Messiah would be crucified on or would die and would pay the price to restore covenant and a promise to his house. And so 
we have this beautiful um, sort of symbology that was happening. We could take an aerial view of what was going on in the wilderness. We would see an ancient tub, and at the heart of that tub was the tabernacle. And, uh, of course, this is the presence or the heart of our Elohim. And, of course, that's exactly where the heart would be placed if you were being uh, lifted upon an ancient tub you know, 2,000 years ago in the Romans' choice of um, capital punishment, what we call or what we often refer to as the cross. So there is no coincidences to these things. The father came up with the ancient Tav long before Rome invented it as a way of crucifixion. And they would have the uh, stakes made of olive wood and uh, you would carry your cross beam to that stake. It would be attached to the stake and then you'd be lifted up. And of course, in that format of being lifted up, it would form the ancient Tav. And so our Messiah literally uh, coming and saying it is finished um, following in line with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet and this incredible, um, this incredible thing that occurred 2000 years ago, which we look forward to because we're going to remember this, um, of course, coming up or approaching the spring biblical feasts um, and the week of unleavened bread, which commences with a Pesach meal. So we're going to be able to uh, look at that anyway. Um, when, when I put up this chart last week, um, I just want to make sure that I've got this. I actually uh, shoved Dan and Asher and Nephitali and had them switched with Ephraim and Manasseh in the, uh, in the slide that I showed last week. So I just wanted to correct that and make sure it was on there because I was going to show the slide anyway. Um, and indeed, one of the uh, dear, dear people in the family had pointed that out. And yes, I was aware of it. And of course, sometimes you just get a little trigger happy and... Uh, uh, when you're trying to put the slides together for the teaching. So I do apologize for that. Anybody, there was any confusion on that. Hopefully I'll be corrected for you now. But in this, we sort of had these gospel accounts that reflect, uh, they all reflect the Messiah, but from four different positions. And so this is why you got this ox, eagle, lion, man that are pictured around the throne of Yeshua, these living creatures in the Brit Hadashah and these revelations that are contained in what we call the New Testament. And so this was from a king position, a servant position, from coming as a son of man position, and of course, the son of God, the divinity position. And so the gospel, what we call the gospel accounts in the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, reflect these different positions. And it's why at the Pesach meals, I like to go back 2,000 years ago and look at it from these various lenses. So when we do the Pesach together this year, um, we're going to be looking at it from the servant um, position. And uh, last year, we had done it from the son of man. Position. So this is just something we bring into the reading on the Pesach uh, gathering. And of course, with all of this, um, the Apostle Paul revealed to us in the book of Ephesians that Messiah, this is the mystery groom revealed, the heart of a husband. And so I always bring this in as we've got a king, a groom, a Messiah at the heart of all of this. So, um, so anyway, there, uh, just record that correction for anybody who needs that? Okay, so we looked at this house divided. These 12 tribes were birthed in the wilderness at Sinai. Now, um, uh, so we've got this birth in the wilderness at Sinai. And then we, we see that there was this division of the 10 tribes in the northern kingdom. We're going to look at a, a couple of interesting things there um, in today's teaching. Um, there's just so much on all of this. And so I'm just going to pick out a couple of points and things that we can look at because... Quite frankly, if we really get into the house and how this is depicted right through from Genesis, right through the book of Revelation, 
um, we wouldn't be doing anything else this year um, uh, to really understand and get into the, the depths of some of these things. But we can look at things enough from a, a why position, not just a water historical or whatever account, and look at these things and get a sense of what is the father doing? He's got this desire to have a house and his house you know, in its spiritual typology is to have 10, uh, sorry, 12 children. And then two more get added or adopted into the family. And we see this with, uh, with the return of, uh, with the return of Gad and, um, and the sons of Zadok. And we spoke about that last week. So we got this beautiful family that our Elohim is forming in order to reflect to the nations and to the people, not only his promises and how he wants us set up, but we have an age to come. And this is why people that often struggle with, uh, you know, the thousand year reign of Messiah, the millennial kingdom, often why you get these different variables or um, misunderstandings regarding the literal nature of the reign of Messiah is because they don't understand why it must occur. It's an intricate part of his promises. And so when you hear various religious doctrines, dogmas, movements, whatever it is, that they try to allegorize or spiritualize the millennial reign and all that, what they're actually doing, and they don't know it, is they're coming against the literal fulfillment and the promises of Elohim regarding his house and the restoration of a covenant. And so when we don't understand these things, we get caught up and we take on board um, these other types of doctrines and we do it glibly because what, what's happening is we're getting caught in doctrine, focusing on the what, and then coming up with uh, outcomes. Whereas what we really to do is go on a journey and trust that Elohim says what he, you know, says what he means, means what he says. And the course is the challenge is for us to understand it. This is the big thing. And I had to learn this many, many years ago. I mean, a lot of things you know, um, especially in the fires of my life and going back 14 years ago when I started to come out of my transition from mainly a Christian lens on that side of the river, I had to have a lot of things kind of reset or re-looked at um, because I, I didn't realize that although the physical is pointing to the spiritual, which is the weightier matter, there is a literal nature to the physical that actually must be in play in order for us to truly understand the spiritual weightier matter. And then what overlies all of it is why is he doing it, any of this anyway? Why even have a physical reality that we will experience this physical flesh fallen position? Why should we even go through this? Why is this a part of the way the father's done something? So to just spiritualize or allegorize a certain part of his plan through the ages is actually doing a real disfavor, not only to our own understanding of his truth and who he is, but ultimately literally to him. And, and this is what becomes sad and what I see in religious dogma a lot is that we're, we're actually coming against the father. Because we, we really don't believe he says what he means and means what he says. And so this challenge there. So we look at this sort of thing. And he's got these 12 tribes. They're, they're going to be birthed. He's going to start to explain, this is my house. These are my people. This is how I want to reflect something. Because I've got this great plan in play. However, there's going to be a problem with the family. You're all going to be in a fallen state. And there's going to be some things that you're all going to start to embrace. And you're going to start to partake of. And it's going to affect the covenant that he made when he established these 12 tribes from the house of Israel, which were the 12 sons, you know, uh, of Joseph. And, and so we are to understand that something literally was put in place and something literally 
was going to be broken. And this was going to play out literally through the ages. And we have evidence and patterns of this all over the earth. And Hasatan has done everything he can, particularly in the last three or 400 years, to have a revisionist modern history, to rewrite the history books, to not let people understand that there is a whole pattern of evidence scientifically laid down throughout the earth. And at some point, evidence demands a verdict that exactly what the scriptures said would unfold did concerning the house of Israel. And so a lot of us are looking at this, discovering, well, what is my faith and what is my identity in all this? Because if all of this physical is foreshadowing the weightier matter, which is the spiritual, and we're heading for an internal perspective, an eternal existence, a spiritual realm, then we're actually experiencing the simulation. We're not actually experiencing the real deal. We're actually experiencing the test. We're experiencing learning the why and who he is, but actually we're heading to our actual existence. Isn't that neat? To actually look at it and realize you're not living the real thing yet. <laughs> now this is quite incredible because we only can see it from our position, can't we? Does anybody ever see it? It's like, it's like, this is the challenges I got now. You know, I got to pay a bill. I got to eat. I got, you know, my friends doing this. I got my kids doing that. My husband's not listening to me. My, my wife doesn't care about what I have to say. You know, like we're living all of this stuff in this fallen state. And of course, everything that we experience so tangibly in this test, we then think, oh, okay, this is all it is. And sadly, without a faith, you have a world doing that right now. It is literally going, this is all we've got. So then you see the movements to try and preserve the only thing it knows. This is why you'll see a lot of these pushes from environmental movements to everybody living in fear and scared over what we're seeing with COVID-19 and all this kind of stuff. Hasatan works with this as God of this world to use fear because basically all you've got is the here and now. There is no eternal perspective. And without an eternal perspective, all you've got is to be scared in the moment and try and fix it, do something, you know, things are going wrong. And as a result of that, as the world has become lost its identity, we've become godless, we're doing all these things. The price to godlessness is your freedom. Now, Elohim has the opposite model. I want you to love me, to learn about who I am, and I'm going to give you the freedom to not do that. <laughs> it's quite the opposite model of the God of this world. The Elohim of all existence, it's a big deal to him that love will be legitimized in a true sovereign way between the creator and the creation. Is that making sense? You making okay? Do you understand? He's there's a great reason why all of this is. So if we just get caught up in the what's, you know, well, it's you know Sinai, it's these ten, you know, it's these twelve tribes, it's you know we see this in history, we you know, and so on and so on and so on, and we miss this greater picture because he could have done it any way he wished. We just have record this is the way he did it. So when we look at the number of the house, somebody like you know my little brain goes, well, okay, so why, you know, what's with, the, what's with the 210? What's with the 12? You know, you could have done it any way you wanted. You could have done it six. You could have made the house, you know, be, you know, whatever, 106. You could have done this any way you wished, but he does it a certain way. And so a part of me 
then so it's like, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, why would he do that? Well, it's to teach us who he is. Now, he could have done that using any other numbers, I'm sure. But he did it using these numbers. So this is the way that we can investigate. This is the way we can ask questions. This is the way that we can try and understand. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so one of the things we came across, especially in Christianity, you know, is this word Gentile and nations and all that. Okay, I'm going to just gonna say a few points here that because this always comes across and, and a lot of my Christian brethren, they really struggle with this because the way it's often taught to them is Gentile is you sort of have Jews and you have Gentiles. Okay, and that's the way it's presented to them. Scripture really doesn't reflect it that way, but this is the way the teachings happen. So many Christians will think of themselves, well, I'm a Gentile. You know, that sort of a thing. Many of you indeed would have once thought that, maybe still do. That's okay. But I just want to say some important things here that, that really we want to get a biblical reflection of this. So it's important to note the word Gentile is not used in any of the ancient manuscripts. Simply because there was no such word. So the game we're dealing with challenges in English. Um, the Hebrew word goy or goyim in the plural is never translated to mean non-Jew. Okay, it doesn't mean that, but they like to say that, you know, oh, the goyim, you're, you're not a Jew, you know, and it's like, no, it's not actually translated to mean this. So what's going on? The word goy is found in the Old Testament about 557 times, 30 times it has been translated Gentile, 11 times as people, 142 times as heathen, 373 times as nation, and, and, um, and one time as another, but not once as non-Jew. So everything's been brought back in this modern perspective, okay, that it's kind of there's the Jews and then there's everyone else. And we've ended up in this kind of modern flavor of this. So Hasatan's trying to mask the whole house of Israel perspective. And, uh, and so we'll talk about that a bit more because this affects how we are to understand the family because our father has created a very diverse family and wants his family to be diverse. And he's looking at this house of his. And, um, okay, so the Hebrew word goy translates English as five collective nouns in Hebrew, such as, um, and as such, cannot be um, actually used and referred to from an individual perspective. So the word ethnos, or where we get ethnicity and all of this, which is the most frequently used, actually means race, tribe, specifically a non-Judean. Notice not non-Jew, but non-Judean. So it's referring to a region under the tribe, but by implication, okay, especially at the time, you it would, you know, default to heathen. Um, also translated Gentile, heathen, nation, people, or another. But no place does it mean non-Jew. So we've got this very modern perspective of this. Either got Jews and everyone else. And then, of course, a lot of that is referred to as heathen. Um, because of the spiritual practices and whatnot that are taken on often by people who do not have a biblical faith uh, throughout the world or indeed unbelievers altogether. The New Testament history was written in Hebrew and Greek, not Latin or English. So it's important that we get that, okay? It was not written in Latin or English. Okay, as a result, we find the English word Gentile comes from the Greek word ethnos, okay, this ethnicity. Uh, and on a very few occasions, uh, Helen or Helen. In a few places where the word has been translated, Helene, it means in Greek or inhabitant of Hellas or Greece. Okay, so all you're saying is they're coming from the Greek 
mindset or perspective, the Greek-speaking person, especially a non-Jew at the time of Messiah. So they were referencing these people in that sense historically. If you are not in the house of Israel, then you are considered a goyim, all right, from a Jewish perspective. That doesn't mean non-Jew. So we get to then this outside the camp. Well, what is the camp if you don't understand the camp? And this gets back to what was established at Mount Sinai, at the tabernacle, the establishment of the 12 tribes from the 12 sons of Joseph, and that coming into play. So if you went outside the camp, you were going outside the house, not Jew heathen. Um, so basically I put here, you're Israel or you are not in the father's economy. Does everyone get that? Now this is very different uh, to how we're taught because Israel in modern terms is what? It's a piece of dirt, isn't it? It's a modern state. It's a country. It's all of these things we think of. But that is not scripturally what it goes on about. We're just going to talk quickly about that in a second. But for in Messiah, I just want to read here from Galatians 3, 26, 29. This indeed was understood by the early disciples. For in Messiah Yeshua, you are all sons of Yah through faith. Remember, this is one of the 12, so one of the fruit of the spirit that you cannot fake and we're going to talk about this for many of you were baptized into messiah have put on messiah okay so you've taken that on now messiah is the head of this house this is interesting so to say there is neither jew nor gentile okay that translation there that's gone in jew or goyim there is neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female for you are all one in messiah yeshua and look at this and if you are messiahs then you are abraham's offspring so we're going right back to the father of it all and the promises of the great nations and the multiplying of this hires according to the promise well what promise yeshua hamashiach and the restoration of a house. Notice the reflection here in the words, in the Brit Hadashah, in our New Testament here, is not there is neither house of Israel or not house of Israel. It's not referring to it in that sense. It's talking at the individual level. And so what you would do if you were a Hasatan is you would now, and especially in the last you know, 2,000 years, you'd be trying to get away from this understanding of 12 tribes or a house and you would have to redefine this now and so everything has become uh jewish and israel has become a country neither of which is biblical now is everybody who's got their bibles who's got their bibles there we go. There's a guy. I say somebody, a few people just run out of the room. <laughs> okay. All right. We're here. I'm, I am going to post uh, some of the scripture we're going to look at, but we're going to go to the great prophet again, Ezekiel, just to bring home some ways that he was given here in, in chapter 37. And I do like to revisit this. Anybody knows this. I have great respect for Ezekiel as a prophet in the sense of how he was used to understand certain parts of this promise, you know, and, uh, and ultimately, what would be the restoration of the house of Israel? Now, 
the book of Ezekiel is the third of the major prophets in the Tanakh, or what we call the Old Testament. Ezekiel records uh, seven visions of the prophet exiled in Babylon during a 22-year, approximately 22-year period. So Ezekiel in this state of exile, Babylonian exile. The main themes um, that have come through in the book and the ancient manuscripts that we have, and we have some very, very old manuscripts now, this particular book of Ezekiel. It's another reason why I like referencing it in these parts. There is no argument as to what it was saying in the Hebrew thousands of years ago at least from an historical evidence perspective. Uh, the main themes of the book are judgment concerning Israel, judgment concerning the nations, future plan for Israel and the millennial temple. Now, this is interesting. Ezekiel seems to think there's a literal nature to the thousand year reign of Messiah. And those who like to um, allegorize away the thousand year millennial reign of Messiah. Ezekiel is one of those books you try to avoid, especially the last eight chapters. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what to do with this, you know, because you can't fit it anywhere else in the historical pattern of history. And yet you're looking at something laid out in such detail that if you think that that is not literal, you might as well be throwing away any description of anything, including the tabernacle and the temple of Solomon itself. And the Ark, for that matter, the Ark of the Covenant and Noah's Ark. Most descriptive thing I can find in Scripture is relating to an age that is yet to come. So this is something that we have to contend with. You don't get to just ignore or allegorize the last eight chapters of one of the most major prophets in all of biblical history. And he's talking from a very literal term. The degrees of measurement and detail, like I say, that is unparalleled in all of Scripture. Ezekiel ben Muzi was born into the priestly family of Jerusalem, okay, around 623 BCE, during the reign of the reforming of King uh, Josiah. He was approximately 30 when he started to receive the visions from Yah. Okay, so he's starting to do this, and he's writing them down. Um, and uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to um, to just, you know, sit down with Ezekiel and listen to him. That day, you know, y'all may come where I can just enjoy listening to Ezekiel chat and, and describe his time in exile and receiving these visions from Yah and how dear to Yah he actually was. You know, this is an incredible brother in the house of Israel. And uh, I personally can't wait to meet him. Okay, so let's start uh, at Ezekiel 37, 11 to 12. Okay, and if you've got your Bibles, just grab those. And I've, uh, I have put these up on the screen for today. I generally don't do this in the Bible reading, but I've decided to do this today. Um, at least when we're going through these sets of scriptures, we're going to read right through, uh, right through to verse 28. Okay. So we're going to go from 11 to 28. And this is what Ezekiel is recording as a part of this, um, as a part of this situation in the established record of this book in the exile, Babylonian exile. Then he said to me, son of man. All right. These are the bones. Look at this of the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. So we've got spiritual and physical words being used here. 
both to the individual and to a whole house. We are also ourselves indeed cut off. Now, this is interesting because this is now getting into a time when we're seeing trouble that was going on with the two. So the 210, all right? There seems to be an illusion or a mission here that there's actually Judah's understanding that it's in trouble, but it still has to hold on to the scepter to the coming of Messiah. And we spoke about the great prophecies of Shiloh in part one. Look at this. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus say Yah your Elohim, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Now, this is interesting. I believe you're seeing a direct allusion or statement to Yom Teruah. Okay, and we celebrate this in the fall biblical feasts, or what we call the Feast of Trumpets. The actual event of the Feast of Trumpets is being mentioned here in Ezekiel. So we have the spiritual or the analogy of a house of Israel and a people, but we also, there is a physical reality to the fulfillment of this actual event, the fall mode name. And we've got Ezekiel, I believe, is giving allusion to this. So we continue on here in 13. And you shall know that I am your Elohim when I open your graves. <laughs> so any of us that get raised in Yom Teruah, hopefully that's all of us. Will we know he's Elohim at that point? <laughs> I think it's pretty much over, isn't it? <laughs> all right. Um, and raise you from your graves, oh my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live eternal life this is what he's referencing we're being raised to eternal life i will place you in your own land i will put you there who's going to do this and the united nations will put you back in your land under turmoil and political debate <laughs> is that what it says who's putting us back who's going to do this everyone Put your hands up if it's Messiah. Do you believe it's Messiah saying he's going to be? Oh, okay, there we go. So no more arguments on this. Then you shall know that I am Elohim, not the United Nations. I have spoken and I will do it, declares Yah. That's pretty serious. The one who wears the heavens as a wristwatch has spoken. I suggest the one who can wear the heavens as a wristwatch is capable of fulfilling what he says and has taught us that. So we continue on. Verse 15, the word of Yah came to me, son of man. So this is the son of man perspective, which we looked at. So the account um, we did last year, Pesach, and indeed is reflected in Luke. Take a stick and write on it. For Judah, look at this and the people of Israel. So if it was just a modern day perspective, Jew or Gentile, we got some very strange words here that aren't falling in line with how the prophet Ezekiel looks at this. Because he's claiming this is the word of Yah. So now the real problem is it's not even Ezekiel that's our problem at this point. Now it's going to be Elohim himself. So our modern perspective is not correct. I'd suggest to you Ezekiel's got it correct, and I'd suggest that Elohim 
has got it correct. Okay, he knows how this works. I'd suggest to you that us 2,000 years on, the God of this world in a very deceived and divisive political position, it's possible we don't have it correct. And the people of Israel associated with them. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, so he's going back to the sons of Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, right? And all the house of Israel associated with them. So again, we're getting these distinctions to a house. And there's much more in this than just Judah. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. Now, remember, we touched on the prayer that Yeshua at the point of just before he would go to the ancient Tav and pay a price for the restoration and the, and the promises of this great covenant for this house. His prayer was, Father, that they may be one. See, we, we have a new age way of looking at that in modern Western terms, don't we? Ooh, oneness. Or spiritual oneness and everybody gets to make up what that is but is it actually possible that there's a literal prayer that yeshua is very well aware of the plans of the father why he's going through this and not cheating he's about to go to his death in physical form and the prayer that's coming out of him is father that they may be one that they may know that you love them and that i have loved them apparently there's going to be a great witness to this and it relates not to our airy-fairy new agedom. It actually relates to a plan for the house of Israel established right back in Sinai after the deliverance of his people from bondage. Isn't it funny how sometimes you think you know these things, but when, you know, the pattern of Messiah, Yeshua did this all the time. <laughs> you know, repetition, parables, and questions on things they'd grown up with through the education of a Tanakh. Indeed, they all, the disciples 2,000 years ago knew the Tanakh better than any of us. If he would do these things, isn't it amazing when you can reread or re-look at what you think you know and what the Ruach can do when you revisit something so that something you think you know starts to get into the heart or a further cut or circumcision. This is why he knows the state we're in and why his pattern every year is to honor the Moedim. Every week we honor the weekly Moedim of the Sabbath. Why? So that we revisit what we think we know. Why? So that something will cut deeper, will get more established that we may understand because it will increase your faith. Your faith will actually increase as a result of doing so. And it will become steadfast. It will, be, it will be able to stand firm in the time of the enemy in our lives. Paul would talk about this in the very nature of the number one aspect of spiritual warfare. That you stand firm and resist Hasatan or the adversary. Well, your ability to do that is directly related to what is the measure of your faith. So we're on a journey of understanding our faith, the heart circumcision of our faith being established, ultimately, which leads to trust in Yah. Now, when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Okay, so they're asking the question. Say to them, thus says Yah, your Elohim. Behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph 
<laughs> that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, 10 of them. And I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one in my hand. Again, not one in the United Nations hand. In his hand. So what does this look like? And I'd suggest to you, there's been a counterfeit of all of this that's come about, particularly since the modern birth of the modern state of Israel, called Zionism. And this has been bought into by many believers. They've been hooked into something they didn't know that they were being a part of. We're going to speak a little bit more about that. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, goes on to say, Ezekiel 37, 21, 23. Then say to them, thus says your Elohim, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone. So the, what he's doing is he's now bringing them from those nations. So they must have gone out there. So everything that we're reading in scripture occurred literally. And will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king. Has that happened yet? Have we had all this scattering the house of Israel and the return? Of, no. You see, the last time we saw them all together with King David. And then into Solomon and then, and then the house being dispersed following Solomon, you've got this interesting thing. We can only be talking future tense, yet to be fulfilled, and it's very literal in nature to this earth. Fascinating. So would Hasatan, does anybody know that Hasatan tries to counterfeit something before Yah does it? Do you know one of the greatest fingerprints that we are close to the end of the age and the coming of Messiah is the actual existence of a modern state of Israel and Zionism? Not because that's what's actually fulfilling Bible prophecy, but it's actually showing you that there's a counterfeit at play. And Hasatan is, can only counterfeit the actual plan of Yah. Yah lays down the rules. And what's happening is, is Yah's looking at all of us going, which one are you going to go for? The real one or the counterfeit? This is interesting. So we're going to talk about that a bit more. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things. So what were we going to get involved with as we were scattered abroad? Spiritual idolatry. Idols. All of these things. We're going to turn away from the Father and his ways. Indeed, we are going to forget who we are. Or with any of their transgressions. Transgressions. We have to have a covenant in order to transgress it. So we're transgressing something that was established for this house. But I will save them from all their backsliding in which they have sinned or missed the mark and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their Elohim. Continuing on 24, my servant David shall be king over them. We know the seed line was going to come or the Nazarene was going to come or the Netzer was going to come out of the seed or the lineage of King David. And they shall all have one shepherd and they shall walk in the rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Okay. So we're actually going to see the law be a part of the coming age. 
We're actually going to see the covenant. We're going to see the statues once again be a part of all of this in his final age. They shall dwell in the land I gave them to my servant, Jacob. When your fathers lived, they and their children and their children's children. So will there be children born into the millennial age? Yes. Will there have to be a seed pool that will start that? Yes. Will there be a governance over that? A rod of Elohim? Yes. Interesting. We are all at the side of the age where we may, we may have the opportunity to participate with him in the great final age before we get out of this fallen flesh. And this is fascinating. We've been given an incredible opportunity to be a part of something if we'll want to know. And my David and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. 26, 28, finish off here. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and set their sanctuary in their midst forevermore. There is a covenant that is being restored here. This is talked about in Jeremiah 31, 31, 33. And so he's referring to, we don't get to make this up. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their Elohim. Interesting. My dwelling place shall be with them. He's coming to us. We're not going up, floating around, you know, and just it's all being done in heaven. And I don't know, Satan's down here thinking about the errors of his ways for a thousand years or something like that. There's all sorts of weirdness. It's very clear. I'm coming to be with you. I will be their Elohim. Ooh, we're now speaking some serious divinity attached to Yeshua Messiah. And they shall be my people. Then the nations will know. And these are the nations that are going to learn more, no more. That I am Elohim who sanctifies Israel. You don't sanctify the dirt. Or political divisions or lines. You sanctify a people. When my sanctuary is in their midst for uh, forevermore. In their midst. Not us in his. Notice the order of this. Great, great promises will be fully fulfilled in the final age to come. And if you take that out, you make Yah a liar. And these are doctrines of demons that have been sown into modern religious movements, maybe with all the best of intent, maybe with agenda, maybe with nefarious agendas. I don't care what it is, but we don't make Yah a liar. He will fulfill. He will do what he says and his promises. I will do it. So he's gonna. So biblical versus political. This is the chance when we talk about all these things, these 12 tribes, is it just a what in an historical journey? Or is this an incredible plan with the why of us understanding a father and who he is? Now, in all of this, are we indebted to Judah and preserving some of the things that have allowed us to come back and establish and understand our identity over the last 2000 years, you better believe it. You mean I'm not speaking anti-Jewish right now? No, I'll be the first to defend my Jewish brethren, if you know me. But I can make the distinction between Hasatan's way of telling me how to view all of this and Yah's. 
I don't need to take on some label that I'm being anti-Jewish by doing so, and neither do you. The wrong political systems, the wrongs that is done, okay, in, in this whole thing that we're doing, do not support our Jewish brothers and sisters. So, so it does not mean that we don't support them. So any of the wrongs that are being done around this, we're distinguishing those acts from the actual people themselves. We have to. 1948, the modern state of Israel was formed politically in the Middle East. So were many other nations in the 20s and the 30s. Uh, make up the whole modern political landscape that you see in the Middle East. The House of Rothschild family in the Balfour Declaration in 1917, the British Foreign Sec James Balfour sent a letter to Barons Rothschild, essentially promising the establishment of the homeland for the Jewish people in what was then known as Palestine. So this was done to do this at this time. And suddenly we've got all these Christian movements and Zionist movements that have said, well, this was God that did it. Nope. It was a James Belford and Baron Rothschild that kicked this off, that eventually lead to a birth of something in 1948. Now the question is, well, was God using them? What evidence do we have of that? What evidence do we have of that? Well, it was these men's great love for Messiah and the plan of Yah, which is clearly recorded in history. No, you're not going to find that. So did he use them despite the fact that they could care less about Yah and their creator? And they're involved in all manner of occult activity. Maybe. But then we have to then make the argument in the establishment for that. And does that play out? Does that fruit play out? Yah is working in all of this, regardless of what your position and understandings are. And he is allowing all of it. Yah can allow or not allow anything he likes. So what everybody's experiencing here with all this fear and COVID-19 and restrictions and new world order and governments coming in and whatnot, well, your Elohim's allowing it all right now. So we better get on and understand why. Because he's allowing it. There's no argument here now. Why is he allowing that? Why did he allow captivity for the house of Israel? the Hebrews into Egypt. Why does he allow any of this? I'm going to suggest to you it's repentance and to understand and to vindicate his promises and his truth. Because there are a lot of believers now that are starting to see the shenanigans that are going on in this world and they're starting to go, wait a minute, maybe I was looking at this through the long, wrong lens. And as a result, teshuva or metanoia or repentance in the English is starting to occur. And people are getting this garbage out of the house. Let us not be fooled as many things are happening on all sides that Yah is not pleased with. So even though he's allowing this, there's a lot of things going on right now in the Middle East that have the modern state of Israel attached to it. He's not pleased with. So just because he's allowing it doesn't mean he's pleased with it. Let's not make those distinctions. The modern state of Israel is behind it. And this has been the decree of many, many believers right now. If they're behind it, therefore must, Yah must be pleased. This is not true. That is the, um, the movement and the position of Zionism. Basically, the modern state of Israel can do no wrong. Yet they're doing some things right now, potentially in relationship to these COVID-19 vaccines, that's waking up a lot of people. Because they're not behaving very, um, very wise as a government. So suddenly, 
we've got a lot of people that have bought into Zionism going, wait a minute, why are they forcing all these vaccines on people and having these green cards? And you've got Benjamin Netanyahu right now is on television going, we are the vaccination nation. We're going to lead the world in this. Fascinating. So the accusation, this is what comes against anybody who tries to have this conversation. What I'm going to suggest to you is to all of you, don't take it. I have wonderful Jewish friends. I have friends in the land of Israel, modern state of Israel right now. And, uh, and I have uh, wonderful Jewish friends that are not in the land right now. This is how I'm going to say to all of you, when you look forward, you talk about these 12 tribes and what we're going to look at. Let no one allow you to stop talking about the house of Israel, because that's how your Elohim wanted you to think about it. In any accusation, if you don't agree with the political or social agenda of a modern state of Israel, then you must be anti-Jewish. And again, I've got here, what a load of garbage. Absolute load of garbage. It's gaslighting, and they're trying to tell you that if you don't agree with something politically, then suddenly you're racist, or you're anti-Jewish, or you're anti-this and whatnot. And you see this going on all the time. Just don't accept it. Say, I read my Bible. I believe what it says. What I'm seeing play out in modern politics is not adding up. That has got nothing to do with loving and being behind my Jewish brethren. Amen? Right? Okay. So don't accept the silly accusations, labeling, and gaslighting that's going on. It's just garbage. In Bereshit, in Genesis 15, 18, on that day, Elohim made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Hmm, that's interesting. So this is now the definition of the land for Israel. It'll be very, very clear on something. See that there? That does not meet that description. And if you wanted to do it on modern day maps and modern Middle East map, this would be much closer. You are one twelfth, coincidentally enough, of how big it actually is. <laughs> We're supposed to believe that the one little bit here in this modern Middle East landscape is somehow fulfilling the words going right back to better sheet. I'm sorry, it fails. There's just no way else I can put this. What we see today does not equal what's in the word. Does everyone get that? So you can have any position you want, spiritually, politically, whatever. But let's just get back to Yah said it. I believe it. There's promises. He defines what it is. Not the United Nations, all this kind of stuff. So I'm just giving you a, a modern political landscape perspective just to make the point. Joshua 1.4, from the wilderness that is in Lebanon as far as the great river and the river Euphrates and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. End of story. That's it. We're going to believe this or we're not. Now remember that. To Euphrates, just remember this scripture. I'm going to look at some things here. Now, the number of the house. So what we're talking about today. Hebrew 12, okay, 210. Shinamasar. The things that came to mind when I was putting the teaching together, and there's, there's just so many of them, but, and we can't look at all, at all of them because, like I say, it just gets incredible. But there's just a couple of ones that we're just going to point out and have a look at today. 
But again, 12 constellations, the Hebrew Mesorot. All right. These were created. Is everyone aware this the heavens were created before or after man? Before man. So there is something that was established in the heavens that actually preceded the very actual creation of man. And this, these heavens reflect an interesting story. So we got the 12 constellations. We got the 12 months of the year in the Hebrew calendar. I guess he could have had 30 months to a year. He could have had seven. He could have had, he went 12. Well, that's interesting. Why? Why did you even set up seasons the way you did? All these kinds of things. 12 sons of Jacob. We talked about that last week. And then it would equate or become the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 stones and the high priest of the breastplate reflecting total of those 12 tribes. 12 pieces to a prophet, Ahiah, and his coat, this new adornment that he was going to wear. We're going to just go back to that and, and, uh, and look at something today on that. They're very fascinating. So Ahiah's coat, what's going on here? And how does this relate to this 210, this number of the house of Israel, this 12? This is a little grisly. The 12 pieces of her body sent out, the, the Levitical concubine. This is one we don't like to talk about a lot, but the Benjamites had gotten up to something quite serious, did something very disgraceful in the house of Israel, and as a result, 12 pieces of the Levitical concubine was sent to the 12 tribes of Israel. This caused great conflict. And of course, the house of Israel united against the actions of Benjamin at that time. Benjamin was just about wiped out. So this is what was going on inside the house. So Benjamin was up to no good at that point. 12 judges as government or rule was established for the house of Israel. So if you're, you're going to have 12 judges, and those judges would represent you know, as they were to be in line with the tribes and so on and so on. So you see these foundations put in place, starting at the heavens, but then being delivered, 12, 12, 12, 12. Yet still this hidden little thing in the Hebrew, 210. 12 stars are garland, the book of Revelation. What is sitting above, you know, this picture that we see in Revelation with, that is recording in the heavens, the birth of Messiah. And what is crowning her head are 12 stars. Very interesting, representing the whole house of Israel. Well, if this is the birth of Messiah. Everybody gets that Messiah represents the whole house of Israel. <laughs> okay, so there wasn't seven, there wasn't 17, there was 12. And there's a reflection to a house, and it's what's going to purchase it. It's king, it's Elohim that is directly in play at the birth of our Messiah. 12 years old. Yeshua speaking in the temple. So he's come to that age where he's going to be able to enter into his Midrash, which would occur on the transition from 12 to 13. Today, that's reflected still in modern Judea, um, Jewish society with the bar mitzvah coming of age or becoming a man. And at that time and at the time of Yeshua, they would go on to enter into the Midrash. And uh, if they showed promise of understanding the Tanakh or their education at that time. Well, of course, there's record that Yeshua was doing this actually in the temple. And actually, the established Sanhedrin at the time was actually quite stunned at some of the things coming out of this 12-year-old's mouth. So, of course, he was being selected to go into what would be called the Midrash. This is a two-year period where you're being evaluated by the religious leaders of who they're going to select to follow in their footsteps as their Talmudin. 
so that they could go on and do this over a 15 year period so that they could become themselves what we would call today in modern terms, rabbi, what they would call at that time, master or teacher, the master of the knowledge of Elohim. And so you've got this going on. Well, Yeshua was doing this at 12 years old reflecting, I believe, a whole house he was going to purchase. And every aspect of what he would have talked and, and addressed, I imagine, would have involved or included from a position of the whole house of Israel. And there's some interesting prophetic insights into some of the ways that he did this. Um, the 12 legions of angels in Gethsemane. Now, this is quite interesting because what was the declaration? You know, Peter swinging away, you know, going to take matters into his own hands and so on and so on and so on. And Yeshua is making the point, don't you know I can't? I can call upon the angels. And I believe he's got his 12 disciples with him and he's referring to it from a house perspective. I got a legion for every one of you. <laughs> not just me. I can take care of the whole lot right now. But this has to go down. You're not understanding what you're seeing in your word or in your Tanakh or in your understanding of Elohim. But he makes that point again. Why? Because he's relating to a house position. He's not just randomly stating a number. I personally need 12 legions of angels and all that kind of stuff. He's talking about all of them. I can protect the whole lot of us with each of you got a legion in that moment. 12 times 12,000. We see this in the, you know, the mysterious 144,000. All what? From the 12 tribes of Israel. Very listed in detail. Again, we spoke about that list a little bit in part one. You know, this very interesting thing, these 144,000, which are going to be marked with the seal of Yah, um, you know, during this time of the Great Tribulation and being a part of assisting the, the truth and the coming into the harvest. You know, and uh, I've always said, you know, we all want to be near one of the 144,000 when this, <laughs> this happens because they'll be very useful servants of Elohim during this time. So if we're all arrived to be in the Great Tribulation, you want to know one of these characters. All right, this is, this is what it's all about. One of the 144,000 will have meaning during the Great Tribulation to you because they're going to help us through it and be a part of this great harvest. So they're assigned, and of course, they're assigned from a house of Israel position, i.e., I believe these 144,000 are alive today, and they themselves don't even know who they are. They have an interesting night in store for them at some point <laughs> before the start of the Great Tribulation. If anybody here in River Shabbat has somebody, you know, if 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 they uh, if they have the angelic host come to them and mark them with the seal of Yah, I'd appreciate you please telling us at River Shabbat that you've been sealed, <laughs> that you've been identified as the one of the 144,000, and so that we can see, you know, that at least we've got one in River Shabbat, so that can help us out. But I believe they're in for an interesting night because these people do not know who they are right now. And so it's going to be quite an interesting thing that will occur to them. Um, and yes, I do believe they are all men, according to scripture. So uh, just for anybody who's got those questions. Um, then in the New Jerusalem. So we're now going into the, you know, we're exiting the time domain. You know, there's 12 foundations to this thing. There's 12 gates to it. Hmm. Seems to have a house perspective. The number of the house seems to be attached to the new Jerusalem. So we have a house perspective coming into the great tribulation. Now we got a house perspective coming in to even uh, a glorified existence, eternal existence. You mean that his house is eternal, 
eternally restored. Yes, it's exactly what the scripture is telling us. And he's even going to great lengths to describing it. 12, 12, 12. Why do this? He's making the point. 12 names of the disciples on the gates, 12 pearls associated with the pearls, a great price that were associated with every single one of them. Now we go back, start to look at the pearl of great price. These are the things that they dug up. They understood. And there was a great price to having these things, you know, but this is all again, the foundations of an eternally restored house, 12 angels guarding the gates to an eternally restored house. And then of course, even the measurements and, and the, um, the measurements and how they link into 12,000, you know, in this 144,000 and the walls are 144 cubits. It's very interesting how he's got it all built. So his house, his eternal house, according to scripture is all based on 210, on 12. This is what he's doing. And he's going to great lengths to just show you that there's going to be a literal restoring and, and fulfillment of these promises. And they are eternal. His house is eternal. In the description of this, and we'll look at this, is something very interesting that comes up. 12 types of fruit every month producing year round are a part of this eternal house. This is given to us in the book of Revelation. Hmm. All right, let's just hold on to that. We'll just look at something right quite quickly because I want to give a personal, just a little personal testimony here. Um, the heavens are telling the glory of Elohim and the expanse are declaring the work of his hands, his hands being his house. Remember, we started with the 12 constellations. Many of you familiar that I love to reference the Hebrew Maseroth, what I believe Adam was intimately uh, understood and what it all meant. This story, this incredible um, uh, promise and uh, uh, the gospel, as we'd say in modern terms, of the plan of redemption of Elohim. Now, what is interesting in all of this is attached to every single one of these, um, the scholars is a tribe. You know, and I'm not, we're not going to be got caught up in genealogy and all this kind of thing. But I do have to say, when I've been looking, researching this over the years, it's quite interesting. The scholars are really at agreement here in general sense and mostly of what tribes are attached to what constellation. It's really quite interesting. Uh, for me, I found it particularly interesting because um, I was born in July and historically now, now, yes, we have a contaminated modern Zodiac version of all of this, Okay. But that does not mean that because we have the boogeyman wearing a mask, you know, the Hasatan didn't create the stars. And it's irrelevant what he's doing with them right now and how he's labeled it from a modern sort of Greek's perspective. This is the, how the Hebrews viewed it. And the creator of the heavens is Elohim. So we're not going to get into divination by looking at the stars, but we can have revelation as it talks about in the sense of understanding that they reveal knowledge they go forth each day and if you read in in better sheet you will see the scriptures that uphold that yah is speaking to us from the heavens indeed nothing greater than his plan of salvation for me personally and i was going through all of this and i can't labor this too much because it gets quite interesting but for me as you would know some of you know that i have this identity with the donkey thing you know, um, does anybody know what the the animal that is associated with going back in the house of Israel to Ishakar? It's a donkey. What is really interesting is that 
and again, I found these things after the fact, but actually, yeah, I was born in what modern people would call cancer. And this is the tribe that's actually established to it. I find these things exceptionally fascinating. At the time of my birth, what was being read was in the Torah portions was Balaam's donkey numbers. Now I found all of this out after the fact. The father over a period of years after I started identifying with this beast of burden to try and get to people that we are to be humble servants these beasts of burdens, he started to identify something personally in my own life. It's been the freakiest journey ever since. You know, I've had moments of a hair standing up on end. I couldn't believe what Torah portion was being read when I was actually coming out of my mother's womb. You know, and, and, and the fact that, you know, I later then discovered that they're attaching, the scholars are attaching Ishakar to actually, you know, what we would call cancer, but of course it's not cancer in the Hebrew Masoroth. And I'm just sitting there going, what is going on? What picture is it possible? And the only reason why I reflect this to all of you is this, okay? Is my identity to a donkey came and the understanding of certain things as it relates to Ishakar, the Mazarov, the Torah portions being read at that time, although that was after the fact. So either that was just one big fluke, or I'm going to suggest to you that even though we have lost our genealogies, our understanding, the house we're attached to, all of these things, there are 12 gates of a house of Israel that we will enter in by. And even though we may not be able to understand what tribal, you know, reality that Yah identifies us with, do you think he is? Do you think it's possible that you're actually not only going to walk through a certain gate, but Yah's got you actually a fingerprint that's going to line to you. And one day you're going to discover what it is. I believe I've been spending the last 14 years of my life knowing that I think I might be walking through the gate of Ishakar. I can't prove that. I can't say that's absolute. I can't say I'm not going to get in, you know, genealogy and endless debates and all this kind of stuff. But what I can tell you is that I believe all of us are going to walk through one of those gates. And is it just possible that Yah knows something about your life that you don't? Is it just possible that you've had a father that knows every single hair on your head and that he is watching what your, your life and you're watching and you're going to discover something when this by time this is all over? Isn't that neat? That it could actually get to this level? Oh, could Elohim do it? Yes. <laughs> Can we muck it all up and muddy the waters and get into all sorts of conjectures and theories and all that? Yes. And the fact that I can even give you the testimony I am on the fingerprints of my life concerning Ishakar, does that mean I'm right? No, in relationship to Ishakar. But I can tell you, I believe the father's been spending the last 14 years identifying that in my life. I don't know why. Why would he do that? My heart desires it. Maybe that's why. Are these prayers that are legitimate to the father? Show me, teach me. Ah, but what if we get caught up in endless disputes of genealogy and bloodlines and all this kind of stuff? Because this is what happens to people. You see, the spiritual fingerprint on my life and how it's related to the physical time domain has been staggering in relationship to me with this donkey thing in Ishikar. <laughs> Maybe you're all of the tribe of Ishikar. Maybe that's what River Shabbat's bringing you. I don't know. But what I'm saying is this. We are in a space where we are seen partly. And when it says that, it means it. 
But an Elohim does not see partly, and he does not see you partly. Understand? He knows exactly how it relates to you, this great restoration of the house of Israel, and have confidence and faith in that. That's all I'm saying. Whatever it might be, because I tell you, there's a literal establishment to the eternal house of Israel. And I believe everybody here in the River Shabbat community will be spiritually aligned with one of the foundations of the new Jerusalem. Does anybody find that exciting? <laughs> I do. Hey, these are just funny things that sort of, you know, get to me, but when I'm doing things like this, I get so excited because I look at this and I go, my goodness, and we're all going to get caught up, you know, arguing about the stupidest things. And I just look at some of this stuff going on now and I'm going, man, I don't think we've got a clue how big this is. Not even close. And we're just trying to give some sort of inkling to this, that it's way bigger than we know and more detailed than we can possibly comprehend or maybe even discover this side of the time to me. But there's some very interesting clues and hints that he's giving us throughout scripture. This, this was, just so you know, our ancient brethren did actually too understand the Maseroth and one. Now this, is a, this particular one was discovered in the sixth century in Jerusalem, um, dates back to the Byzantine period in the synagogue, the Bet Alpha. Anyway, what was interesting is at the very center of this ancient synagogue was the Hebrew Maseroth. <laughs> so I think there was things that they understood too, and they weren't playing divination and you know modern horoscopes and all that kind of rubbish. I think they were acknowledging a, uh, a pattern of redemption that was always written in the heavens, and they're aware of it. And notice that there's four living creatures sitting around the throne of someone who's sitting in the middle. Who do you think that might be? <laughs> I'd suggest to you that's Yeshua Mashiach. And these are the sorts of things that they were aware of. So I'm just saying that we do, we've got ancient, even more ancient than this example. Um, but we're just seeing these fingerprints and these understandings from the word to the physical, to the actual spiritual nature of our journeys. And don't disregard this. But what we don't want to do is take our conjecture and then say it is fact. What we have is what we have. We have his word. We have the evidence. And then we know where it leads. And allow that to be. The danger doesn't come when we wonder something or we take something to the Father and ask him to reveal it. The danger comes when we make that a doctrine. Does that make sense? That's when it becomes dangerous. When we say, well, I am now the holder of all truth on that matter. What I do know is this. Scripture talks about the heavens. It talks about why Yah made them. It talks about what's written in them. And it talks that it brings forth speech. I know our ancient brethren understood this story and understood how it works. And I do know that this marks the signs and the seasons for the Moedims. And we do know that we have these interesting correlations that go all back to the ancient house of Israel. Those are the things we can know. This is our... Uh, and I just got to mention, because I just love this thing that he did. This is our illustrator in Bible Pathway Adventures, but he was having a conversation with his actual son. He's called him Chester here, but this is my our illustrator in Bible Pathway Adventures, and he was having this with, I believe, his seven-year-old son at the time. And he wrote out this cartoon, and I just loved it so much, because it just was so stunning. He sent it to me, and he said, I had this conversation with my son last night. I've drawn up something to reflect it. And so this is what he fucked up. They were sitting outside together looking at the, at the stars. And his seven-year-old son goes, why do you, um, 
uh, sorry, his dad said to him, why do you think the stars were created, Chester? And his son answered him, his little seven-year-old son goes, I think it's God's way of saying he'll leave the lights on until we come home. Isn't that beautiful? You know, out of the mouth of a child. You're going to leave the lights on to it. You know, this eternal house is restored. Now, how would I reflect this in, you know, my adult, you know, convoluted, you know, journey of, you know, making so many mistakes, I can't count them, repentance and all that kind of stuff. Well, I'd say, I, I think it's his way of telling us he's eternally, eternally restoring the house of Israel and he's got it all in hand. But the child just says, I think he's going to keep them on until we all get home, you know, and the simplicity and the power of that is just incredible. I don't know how to preach like that anymore, but that seven-year-old could preach this whole thing I've just been on about in that, that simple of a statement. Incredible. Just incredible. I love it. Okay. So in those 12s, in those lists I was talking to you about, I talk about this 12 producing fruit business, right? This is interesting. Revelation 22, 1 to 2, it says this. Then the angel showed me the river of water, of life. So we've got this river of life. Analogy, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of Elohim and of the Lamb. Anybody who questions now Yeshua's divinity, you're going to have a real problem with the book of Revelation, the revelation of him. <laughs> it's pretty clear what it says. <laughs> All right. So of the throne of Elohim and of the Lamb, here we go. The water, the living waters are flowing forth through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river. So this tree is straddling. It's over. It's like it's, on, it's appearing on both sides of the river. The tree of life. And with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Wow. So we have an eternal life insight going on here in something after the final age is over. After the millennial reign of Messiah is over, there's a beautiful picture being painted here. And it's referring to these 12 fruits that are being produced by the tree of life. By the river of life. Eternity. An eternal understanding of something. Well, I found that fascinating because it triggered in me something. I'm going, but wait a minute. Most of our scriptures talk about the fruit of the spirit, right? There's nine that are generally listed in our, in our scriptures that I didn't realize that there was some extra Hebrew texts and things like that, that may have not been necessarily fully included in all of our, in all of our modern sort of Bibles. And so I always found that disconnect there going, it doesn't make sense to me. What made sense to me was the 12 fruits producing themselves each month for 12 months. That makes sense. 12, 12, 12 house of Israel. But this, this fruit, well, this is related to the fruit, you know, immediately my mind went to the fruit of the spirit. So, Anyway, there was a time in my life when I would do a bit of homework. I just want to share a little bit of this journey. There was something in the original form of Christendom. And this is interesting because um, basically Christianity as we know it, although it was being established through uh, Catholicism at that time, did manage to capture and keep something in what was the original Bible for Western society. It's called the, um, the Latin Vulgate. Most of you know this is our... Uh, modern sort of English or the journey to our modern English Bibles. Vulgate name is used in Latin to translate the Bible that is historically connected to the church. So this was done through what they refer to as St. Jerome or Father Jerome. But this work was done in AD 30, uh, 347 to 420. Now, what's interesting was that this was a very dedicated man 
to the truth. So this Jerome, you know, they call him St. Jerome and everything else, but remove all the Catholicism from it and to the individual, the brother, what he was trying to establish. He spent much time with the Jewish people living in caves, doing things, getting the translations of manuscripts and certain things right. This thing that became the Latin Vulgate, although it's got many, uh, I believe, um, many issues in its English transliterations and it's even in its Latin translations, and not everything was perfect about it. I believe, though, he did get this right. Now, I believe it re relates to the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, the portions of the New Testament that have been discovered from as early as the late second centuries, many Latin manuscripts existed prior to the Vulgate's production. Now, look at this. By 382, Pope Damascus uh, commissioned Jerome to produce the official translation into Latin that could be used with confidence within the churches. Okay, so La um, Vulgate meaning common for the common people. His version completed in about AD 400 became known as the Edition Vulgate and became the official version of the Bible in the Western Church for the next 1,000 years. So as imperfect as this was, this work by Jerome, Yah used it. Just remember that. That's the point I'm making. We're not arguing whether the Vulgate is the best and most accurate translation of all truth concerning Yah's word. We're looking at something that was fundamental as to why all of you are here in relationship to his truth and this journey on it. Now, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Galatians, um, recorded in five, uh, chapter 522, lists the fruit of the, of the Holy Spirit. There are two different versions of the text, though. Now, Jerome actually took from a longer, not the shorter version, and the, the long one commonly used in the Catholic and Protestant Bibles today, which is the shorter text. It lists nine from the Holy Spirit. The longer version from St. Jerome in the Latin translations of the Bible, and I believe arguably the older manuscripts concerning the fruit of the Spirit, um, the Vulgate actually includes three more. The Vulgate is the official text of the Bible for the Catholic Church uses. For that reason, the Catholic Church has always referred to the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. Do they have this one right? I believe they do. And I believe it actually explained to me years ago when I saw this disconnect with the re revelation. Does anybody ever remember me saying to you, whenever you see a supposed contradiction or disconnect, that that's Yah's way going, there's a gem to find? There's something to find here. Dig deeper. Have a look at it because we've had a lot of things compromised over the years. So regardless of what we're going to say about Catholicism, regardless about our, you know, um, different attacks on certain aspects of the Latin Vulgate and its translations and everything else, Yah did allow this. He did use it. And I do believe they got this one right. And this was interesting. And that longer texts are contained within the Vatican vaults today. So they do refer to the 12 fruits. And I believe this is correct. We generally have in our modern English translations, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, self-control. The ones that were brought in in a longer text are long-suffering, modesty, and chastity. Now, what's fascinating about this, that we've got these 12 fruits being produced every month for 12 months from this eternal picture that's being painted in relationship to what's called the New Jerusalem or the restored Jerusalem. She's back to her glory and her beauty. Now, this is interesting. These are given for the healing of the nations, and it relates into eternal life. And the water, this tree of life and this living water, is all giving forth eternal life. Well, if this relates to the fruit, it makes sense to me. Because I believe what we're seeing tucked into this is something that is an antidote to something that the disciples 2,000 years ago spoke about in the New Testament. 
on the Brit Hadashah. So, just to try and make this connection for everybody, which I think is interesting, there's sort of three fiery darts, the fiery darts of Hasatan, the adversary and whatnot, and what he can fire. We're in this current fallen state of iniquity. Well, this is interesting. In the state of iniquity, um, we see here, and this is actually in John, I've got a wrong reference going on there. Um, but in the book of John, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, so first John is saying, if anyone loves the world, love the father, the love of the father is not in him. Now the love, the word being used here, love in the Greek is agape. So if you unconditionally are loving the things of the world, because if that happens, anything of the world is acceptable. So this isn't that I enjoyed myself the other day. <laughs> <laughs> and now you got to feel guilty about it because you enjoyed yourself. What it's talking about is you're unconditionally accepting anything of the world. Now, this is what we are starting to see in the morals of man in politically and in society. This is what you're starting to see. It's not that we struggle with certain things. We're now trying to justify them with full acceptance. And this happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, and of course they were destroyed. It's when certain things, it was what happened, you know, before the time of, of the flood, the pre-Diluvian society, it started to accept and say, it's okay, this genetic tampering that's going on with the, with the angels and all the sorts of things. You got to a point where um, we become used to certain behaviors which are not okay in the Father's way. So understand the position of this is from agape or an unconditional sense in how we look at the world. Just because we enjoy things, in our life, don't, um, don't make the distinction that that means that everything that the world has to offer is somehow acceptable to Yah, because it isn't, it isn't. And that's what this is trying to make. Anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if the world is defining how you are to view truth and not him, then it's saying the love of the Father is not in you. It's actually not there. And so we're starting to see this play out in modern politics and the world's faltering and struggling to find its way these days. For all that is in the world, now look at this, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. So these three fiery darts, you know, the fiery darts of Asatan, he's firing at us while we're in this state, this fallen state. And it's focusing on our flesh, our eyes and our pride. It's not from the father, but from the world. Well, the God of this world is Hasatan. So he knows how to um, get after you, if you will, from a fallen position as God of this world. And the scripture in 1 John is just clearly stating this. I just want to point this out real quickly, because again, this, this gets into all sorts of interesting things. But what I do find fine, fascinating, if we have these 12, uh, uh, we have this tree producing its 12 fruit and its leaves are used for the healing of the nations. And this, is, this relates to an eternal existence. Well, this is fascinating because the lust of the flesh or the desire of the flesh, it's fascinating now that we can take all 12. Chastity, which relates to submission. Well, this one was missing. Self-control. You're not indulgent as a, as a pattern. Doesn't mean that you haven't indulged. It means that it's not, you're not accepting or embracing unconditionally everything the world's giving to you. So you've got this self-control on certain things that are coming at you. Kindness. You're, you, you, it's not deciding 
you know, who you are, your generosity, your ability to give, your ability to help others, all those sorts of things. So from a flesh, you'll make the sacrifice to, to help others. You're going to make a sacrifice that's going to relate directly to a flesh choice and decision. And then there's gentleness, um, which is interesting, not vengeful. So your ability, you're not going to seek vengeance upon a wrong or misdoing through to you. Now, lust of the eyes, this is interesting. Modesty was another one that was left out. This humility, this, uh, this ability where you're not going to um, um, be a part of um, even necessarily tempting others. So modesty was actually a fruit of the spirit. And so this is something that's going on. So how is this helping us in a fallen state? Well, I mean, it can be obvious when we use, you know, perhaps maybe a, a woman dressing seductively. That's an easy one to get. We see that account scripturally all the time. But modesty can relate to all sorts of things that cause us to stumble. You know, we're not being modest with maybe how the Father's blessed us or what we're doing or we're going out bragging about our achievements or all these kinds of things. This lust of the eyes can start to take hold then. And this is where you get covetousness from you know, in the covenant and things like that. And this is why we're not to covet others. So this is interesting that it's an actual fruit of our lives, or I believe going to be a part of the eternal perspective. And I believe is one of the outcomes or one of the fruit of the spirit. Goodness, just doing what is right. Your ability to go to choose, not the evil part of the tree, the knowledge of good. And so you're starting to reject the evil side of that statement of the knowledge of good and evil, patience, merciful and forgiving. You're able to do this. Well, what are you being patient about? Well, you're seeing somebody do something. Think of self-righteous behavior. Somebody sees something, they make the judgment on that, and then they're attacking that person. It's literally going, you're not doing what's right in my eyes. And I believe self-righteousness is really attached to this. It's often not understood that this is a merciful and forgiving thing. Patience is born of actually understanding someone's journey. And then faith, trust. You know, you had that saying, has anybody ever heard, if I can see, I'll believe? And the Father's going, believe and you will see. We're learning to trust him, this essence of faith. Is it directly related to your eyes? You better believe it is. Much of Christian, many parts of Christianity are being deceived right now because they're demanding to see something with their eyes or they're demanding to feel something, you know, from an emotional level. This will get into the pride perspective. All of these things are being used to bring about deception. Pride of life's interesting. Now, if anybody have heard my teachers, I think this relates to... Um, Messiah's life matters. I forget which part it is, but I talk about denying the power of the rock. One of the th things I say is that there's three that you cannot fake. So when I was speaking of the fruit of the spirit from a nine position at that point, I'm bringing in the 12 now, but this still holds true. I do not believe that you can fake true unconditional love, agape, the love of the father. I don't believe you can actually fake joy because it is not emotionally based. You can have joy that surpasses all understanding. In other words, you're in a place that you can't even explain regardless of your circumstance. And then there's peace, true shalom in a matter of anything you face, no anxiety. These three can't be faked, but pride is attached to all of them. You better believe it. Conditional love has pride absolutely attached to it. How something looks, how something um, can be perceived or somewhat someone has. So I'll love them for what they have, all these sorts of things. We don't think of love being attached to pride. It absolutely is. And don't think it coincidence that the three you can't fake are directly attached to pride because pride was the thing that was directly associated with Hasatan.
and then long-suffering. You're not easily provoked. We see a world that's making decisions on emotions. Its love is certainly far from unconditional. It's making nothing but emotional decisions. It's experiencing nothing but anxiety. And as a result, it's easily provoked. All of it. I don't believe it's a coincidence that I can take the 12 fruit and know that each one, four of each of them, all are perfect antidotes to what we see in the book of John was referring to as the things that can take us down in this world. So the fruit of the spirit is directly acting as an antidote to all of these things that we are experiencing in the world. And this is why we want the fruit of the spirit to come forth and for Messiah to grow in us because it is the essence of our spiritual warfare. And it's something that the, the enemy will just be firing this at you. And as we grow in Messiah and as the fruit of the spirit comes forth, we're literally starting to get a glimpse of an eternal existence, starting to experience that what once provoked you or what once made you anxiety or what once tempted you or what once you wouldn't you know, submit to you, you just go through the list. It's starting to lose its hold and the world will grow strangely dim. Now, are you there yet? Are you perfect? No, of course, we'll all struggle. But as the Ruach grows in us, as Messiah grows in us, this will naturally come forth. And you know what it is for you? And I see this statement. And even though it's referring to eternity, I believe we can experience something now in this sense. It brings healing to your life now. The fruit of the Spirit actually brings healing to your life. And this is directly being related to a restored house to 10 or 12 position. And my personal, I can't prove this because this is something that goes into to something. Maybe one day I might have it revealed. But I believe it's quite possible that each of these tribes may have actually thrived in one particular part of these, these fruits attached to them. We're going to look at some interesting characteristics as we look at some of the things we do know of, of some of the tribes in scripture uh, in the other parts in this series. Anyway, I just thought I would share that because it's a big deal. We're going to finish here, which is something I want to relate to here with this coat torn into pieces, the Shem Nasar, this 210. What was this all about? King Jeroboam. So Jeroboam was son of Nebet, member of the tribe of Ephraim. Uh, I just got a lot here, but... Uh, um, Anyway, when he was still a young man, King Solomon made him the superintendent. He was over the tribesmen in Jerusalem and so on and so on. So he was uh, coming up. It was somebody that King Solomon recognized in Jeroboam. Became conversant and widespread discontent, though, with the extravagances that was started to come into the reign of King Solomon. So there was something that was coming in, and King Solomon was embracing a lot of things with some of his antics um, and some of the spiritual uh, things that were coming in uh, through the influence of the concubines and the wives. And this was starting to come into the kingdom of Israel. So something's coming in through spiritual adultery. And Solomon, even though he is the wisest, and I just love the way that scripture does this, the wisest man to have ever lived, he still fell to spiritual adultery. In other words, the wisest man that ever lived could still be seduced by a woman, both physically and spiritually. <laughs> so this is the true power of a woman. A woman wields the most powerful thing there is. This is why all this modern feminist stuff is just an absolute ripoff. Women have such power wielding in their hands. And I'll tell you something, you know, one of the greatest statements, you know, um, you know um, that I actually ever heard of a woman, she got it. And she said, you know what, Curtis, if, if, if 
um, I get enjoy being treated like a queen. And she goes, you know why? And she looks at me, she goes, because I treat him like a king. And she was so right when you said that, the exact opposite of modern feminism. In other words, she knew she had the true power in that sense. Do you know a man will do most ridiculous things in order to please a woman? It is stunning. And if women lose that and men no longer care, you're being lied to. And modern society and women are being ripped off like you wouldn't believe and they're becoming unsafe as a result. Once men stop caring. So the true power from women is being actually ripped away with modern feminist movements. Sadly, the whole thing's a lie. It's a stitch. Anyway, um, he became conversant with widespread discontent um, and used with these extravagances. Okay, influenced by the words um, uh, Ahia, um, he began to form the view becoming king of the 10 northern tribes. So the prophet Ahia is going to come in and do something. We're gonna, just going to read this for a second. Now, this is interesting. He remained under the protection of Pharaoh. So, so Jeroboam goes to Pharaoh. I love how Egypt's always used to hide people <laughs> while Israel's doing it. It's quite interesting, right? Egypt plays a neat role in that way, always has. And so he runs into Egypt and the Pharaoh is actually under his protection until Solomon died. So this is fascinating. So there was a real political discontent going on in the house of Israel. He's gone there and he's being protected by Pharaoh. Anyway, after the event and the death of, um, of Solomon, there's this delegation, okay, that's being asked. And, and King Rehoboam, it's to, to reduce taxes. Well, Jer Jeroboam is, you know, aware of this discontent that's going on. Rehoboam rejected their petition and 10 tribes withdrew their allegiance to the house of David. Okay, Ben David. Now, this is interesting. And proclaimed Jeroboam as their king. So Jeroboam's being protected. He's coming back. And now, okay, we'll take Jeroboam as our king. Now we're seeing the split of the kingdom all stemming back to spiritual adultery, then all going back to 2.10, Shanem Asar. So the 12 is still being shown in this split, and we're about to see the split. We talked about that split uh, uh, last part, this uh, northern and southern kingdoms. Now, initially, one of the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, remained to form the new kingdom of Yehuda. They were loyal to Rehoboam at the time. Let's just look at something. The prophet, um, Ahia, he's interesting. Okay, this comes from a Levitical line. Now, this prophet, okay, he was known as the prophet of Shiloh. Okay, and this interesting thing, in the days of Solomon. Ahia foretold to Jeroboam that he would become king. So this great prophet, this Levitical, uh, from a Levitical line, is saying that he's going to be told he's going to become king. Now, the Bible records two of the prophecies, and this is the first king. He announced the separation of the northern tribes uh, from Solomon's United Kingdom of Israel, forming the northern kingdom. Now, the other prophecy was then later delivered to Jeroboam and foretelling his death and the king's son and the destruction of the house of Jeroboam, the fall, and then ultimately would become the captivity of Israel. Now, think of this. That would go beyond the river. Now, this is an expression of the land east of the Euphrates. I just want you to remember that. According to the second book of Chronicles, okay, uh, Ahia uh, also authored a book described as the prophecy of Ahia, uh, the Shilonite. Now, this contained information about Solomon's reign. This text did not survive. It's referenced, but it did not survive. So when you think of, um, you know, certain books um, that didn't make the, what we would call the canon or the canonical books, the 66 books, which make up what we call our Bible today. But this is interesting as one of them was non-canonical book referenced, but it still is referenced in scripture. And this is first Kings 1141. It's referred to as the acts of Solomon. 
So something interesting, okay? Now, should this be in the what we call the Bible or whatnot? He seems to have a pretty good, accurate record from a Levitical lineage of actually something directly related to the house of Israel. I've never read the Acts of Solomon. I'd like to. Anyway, rabbinical tradition then goes on to, and they do this a lot, but, you know, I was, you know, lifted into sort of this you know, great mythical status. And now they're saying he was lived a lifespan of the antediluvian, you know, Methuselah and Adam were two of the oldest recorded in, in all of scripture, um, all that tradition. But what I wanted to say, the reason why I point that out is not that I believe that Ahiab lived as long as Methuselah, the, old, the longest recorded uh, living human being in the fallen state in scripture, but more the fact that the respect that rabbinical tradition had towards this prophet. That's more my point, to the point where they would lift him up to that mythical status, if that makes sense. Okay, let's just read this here. So this 210, where we all started today. You remember Egypt and Euphrates? 210, the prophet's coat. All right, so 1 Kings 11, 29, 31, we're reading from. And at the time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem and the prophet Ahiah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. And Ahiah dressed himself in a new garment. So he's put on this garment specifically for this prophetic thing he's about to do. And the two of them were alone in the open country. No one else is around. Then Ahiah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. So his way of giving the prophet is taking the garment a priestly garment, okay? I believe he's representing something here, a decision that's coming from this. He's representing a priestly position in doing this act, okay? A shadow or typology of Yeshua, if you will. There's something interesting going on. He tore it into 12 pieces, and he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says Yah, Yalahim of Israel, behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. So now the 12 has a 10 component to 10. Shem, Shanan, Asar. And then we see the great prophet Isaiah refers to something quite interesting here, 2713. And I believe he was well aware of how great this reference or this typology or symbology of Yeshua making the pronouncement over the 210 or the house of Israel, this breaking into the 10 tribes, which would then get scattered, all fulfilling sort of this journey of this part of this father's plan, great plan of redemption from the house of Israel. It says here in Isaiah 27, 12, 13. And again, I just saw this allusion and it just meant so much to me of, of recent years because it's amazing what you see tucked in these great prophets. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, He's mentioning Egypt and Euphrates exactly around this pronouncement of the division or this breaking up or judgment on the house of Israel, 2.10. Yah will thresh out the grain. He's going to thresh out the grain. He refers to the grain from a harvest perspective. And of course, we know that that's the typology relating to people. And you will be gleaned. Look at this. One by one, O people of Israel. I believe he's directly relating to the event of the great prophecy of the code and Ahiah here. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. 
Whoa. Now we're referring to the fall Moedim. So he's going back to our highest prophecy. He's going back to all this, and now he's going to jump to the fall Moedim of when this is all going to come into its next stage, its next play. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship Yah on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Oh, make no mistake about it. That has not happened yet. <laughs> okay. They are going to do this. And he, our Elohim, will be in our midst, just as the book of Revelation tells us. So let's finish here. Now we're going to read what Yeshua responding to his disciples. They're all trying to figure out things and ask questions and do things. And this statement by Yeshua. Yeshua said to them, truly, I say to you. This is the master, the one who will be in our midst in the new world. In the age to come. When the son of man sits on his glorious throne. It's relating to the earth. When he sits on his glorious throne, you have followed me. Those who have actually followed, come follow me. Do you mean we could follow him right to exactly what it promises? To rule and reign with Messiah, that there's an actual government? Look what it says. You also sit on 12 thrones. Exactly a house position, judging 12 tribes. Of Israel. He is going to have the order of the house restoring his great promises leading right up to the end of his reign before we then head into the restored eternal house which is recorded in the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22. And I don't believe that's any, any coincidence that it's representing the Tav, the ancient Tav that these revelations are given. The 22nd letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So this is exciting. So when we start to look at some of the characteristics of the tribes and we go on in the series, we are going to truly know that what we are seeing is all about a house eternally restored in every aspect or what we can glean from the characteristics of these tribes fundamentally are playing out throughout history and are coming all to an incredible crescendo to the fulfillment of the fall Moedim established or being established in this incredible period that we call the reign of Messiah or the thousand year reign of Messiah. Amen. So let's finish, let's finish there today. Is that okay? And we can have a, we can have a quick break and, uh, and we can come back for some Q and a and, um, and uh, and finish up there with our Shabbat today. So go and grab a coffee, go to the washroom, whatever you need to do, and we'll see you back here in a few minutes. <laughs>